0: Hello I'm Alan Marks and welcome to another edition of Leadership Matters. I'm joined here in the pod today as always by my partner Alan Parry. Hello Alan how are you?
1: Yeah very well thank you. Hello listeners.
0: Uh, You have a good weekend? Terrific. That's good. That's good. That's good. Um, Well today's guest needs little introduction. He's a lawyer by trade. John Green was an investment banker for 13 years and one of the early breed of highly successful Macquarie bankers. After 13 years, he resigned to become an author, and to date, John has published four highly successful thrillers that have enabled him to become one of Australia's best-known writers. John's writing style is described by ABC Radio as having the sophistication of John le Carre and the, the pace of Geoffrey Archer, no mean feat. Although I don't think Geoffrey Archer has too much pace these days, John.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a good holiday. He had a good holiday. It's Her Majesty's pleasure, it sounds He <laughs> <You laughs> did.
0: John is also a co-founder with daughter Alison of their publishing company, Pantera Press. And in addition, is the Deputy Chair of QB Insurance and a Director of Challenger, in addition to having a number of philanthropic interests. Welcome, John Green. Thank you for having me. Nice for you to be here. Thank you. John, just to kick off, what was your first ever job and and what did you take away from it?
2: Well, I had lots of first ever jobs, if I could put it that way. Um, I was for a time a copy boy for a newspaper group. Uh, But the the job that was most influential on me was uh, I worked as a fitter and turner in a company called Dishmaster for a short period of time, shorter than I had expected. (laughs) Uh, And I'd gone there really to work for, you know, a couple of months. Uh, And when I arrived there, I had no technical skills, no, I was hopeless with cutting metal and doing all of that kind of thing. Um, But there was a great culture of um, largely, probably 50% immigrant workers and 50% true blue Aussies, Mm -hmm. if I could call it that. And it was a fantastic workplace. In addition, the company was subject to takeover. And none of us knew what a takeover was back then. This is in the very early 70s. And I'd just come out of school, uh, and we saw all of these men walking through the factory with notepads, wearing suits, looking very formal and ominous. Mm. And the older workers there were quite worried about this I wasn't worried I was you know 18 or something and um, I thought well we'll see what happens Uh, Christmas Eve came and it was the factory's party Uh, and the manager of the factory whose name was Milo stood there and said ordinarily this is a very happy occasion but I have been given the job of sacking everybody Gosh! <laughs> and he handed out envelopes, each of which had a pink slip in it and a cheque based on whatever people were entitled to. Uh, I opened my envelope and it had a cheque in it for a few weeks' pay and I wasn't really entitled to that because I wasn't going to be there for very long And this was as if I was a full-time employee that was going to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So at an appropriate moment, I went over to Milo and I said, Milo, I think you've made a mistake here. I'm not entitled to all this money. Um, And he said to me in words that are much more colourful than this, John, uh, if they want to fire everyone, they can pay. (laughs) He used slightly more elaborate language language than that but what I took away from it uh, was the inhumanity uh, that can come with business and how um, you know regardless of what the size of the company is it's made up of people who have families have lives have interests feel very devoted to a company and that having subsequently become someone very active in mergers and acquisitions and takeovers myself, it was a lesson that I carried with me all the way through. Very good. Thank you.
0: Alan?
1: Yeah, John, um, you've had a, a few careers. Um, you know, we're in the careers business ourselves here at Boyden, and uh, you know, we're often interested in the trajectory of people and the direction that they take and you've moved quite substantially from, let me get the order right, lawyer to banker, mm-hmm. banker now to board director. Mm-hmm. Um, what's What's been the trigger to those quite substantial changes of direction that you took?
2: Mm. Um, different triggers, I think, but a common theme, and the common theme really was wanting to keep being challenged. And I loved each of the careers that I had and the organizations that I worked for. Uh, So I was a partner in two law firms and really, really enjoyed being a lawyer until I didn't. And I found that, or I felt that what I was doing, was becoming a bit samey. Mm. And I was quite good at it. People liked to come and get my advice and all of that kind of thing. But I felt that it wasn't really stretching me as much as I wanted to be stretched. Uh, And um, I started thinking about doing other things and it was kind of a happenstance that um, Macquarie Bank said to me, why don't you come and work for us? And I thought, goodness. that's a bit of a stretch. Uh, and they said, well, we don't think so. Come and try it, and I tried it, and I loved it. Mm. Um, uh, and you know, becoming an investment banker was, for me, uh, like I was teetering between um, terror and ecstasy every day because this is really exciting, it's fabulous, it's a different world to what I'd been inhabiting for the mm. 17 years before. But then I didn't know what I was doing, you know, and I had to know what I was doing. And then how do I find out? And who do I have around me to make sure that the quality of what we're doing is, you know, consistent with the bank? Mm. Um, and they were incredibly supportive uh, of me, and it was fantastic experience. Um, and then um, over the years. Uh, I'd always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to write novels. I'd always written stuff, uh, going way, way, way back, even at school, you know, I was the editor mm. of the school newspaper and so on. Um, but I wanted to write a novel. And then Macquarie made a huge mistake and sent me to a leadership course where after the course, at the conclusion of the course, the guy who was running it said, We've all spent all this time working out on how you can be a better leader for the organization and so on. So what we're now going to do is spend a bit of time on you as people. And I want you to write down on three pieces of paper what uh, one thing you would like to do Mm. for yourself on one piece of paper, one thing you would like to do for your family on another, and one thing you would like to do for your community on the third. So that's easy. I write down on the me, I want to write a novel and uh, wrote down some other things for the others. And then he said, okay, so we're all investment bankers in this room. You love deadlines. Write down a deadline for when these three aims are gonna be achieved. So he said, that's easy, write down three dates. And he says, "Now you're all investment bankers. Uh, Every presentation you finish with has next steps. So write down the next steps that will lead to that date this is getting difficult, you know. <laughs> and so for each of the three, I wrote down the next steps, etc. And I thought, well, that's all fine, you know. It's quite ethereal, you know. It's not real and tangible. And then he did something that was quite um, dramatic. He said, I want you to turn to the person next to you and share what you've just written down. Now, this was very confrontational because this was private. This yeah. is, you know, this is my little idea for myself um, we all had that reaction I think and we did turn to okay. our neighbours and then talked about it so the secrets were out because he not only asked us to tell the person next to us but then asked went around the table and asked us to tell each other so uh, I would kind of committed publicly that I wanted to write a novel and I had this timeline. Mm-hmm. Part of it was I want to take off Time from work to go and work on it, um, and so I went home that mm-hmm. evening and spoke to my wife and said, "Guess what?" <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just changing the uh, the topic completely, John. Um, on the international sports, what's the big? We were talking a little bit earlier about you know social media and how. Um, uh, how things get are now getting into the business world and what's the biggest challenge for
2: Australian business leaders in today's world do you think? I think it's trust and it's been that way for a while but the intensity of the problem is now as great as I think mm. we've ever seen it and it's not it's not a new phenomenon I think we've seen over time crises in the business world that have challenged trust Uh, and um, we're seeing that a lot now globally Mm. and we're Mm. seeing it in politics globally I think it's not just a business challenge it's it's a global challenge challenge. in politics Mm. business Mm. you know almost everything and one of the things that uh, needs fixing quickly is for people to reclaim how the virtue of business because business is actually very virtuous. Mm. Because what it does is it means that any one of us, if we wish, uh, can kind of achieve our dreams mm. if we're willing to take some risk. Mm. And if the idea is good, we can attract some capital, mm. and we can go we can go on from there. If I look at the issues we're facing today with the Royal Commission into Financial Services in Australia, mm. uh, I think we have to put it into a, a context. For me. I don't think that it's hard to think of an industry that is nobler than the financial services industry. What it does is say on the banking side, it enables people to achieve their dreams. You want to buy a house, we'll lend you the money to buy a house. You want to start a business, we'll lend you the money to start a business. All of these things, it is the lubricant of a healthy society. If I look at the insurance world, uh, that too Mm -hmm. is an important enabler. Mm -hmm. Um, You can't these days have a school fate. You won't get approval to have a school fate unless you can insure uh, the grounds for the fate. Um, So it's a very important thing. There's community benefits from that. You can't build a building unless you're going to insure it. So equally, Uh, you know you're going to hire a builder to build your home the builder needs insurance because what if the builder goes bust? You will have given the builder a lot of money as an individual and it hasn't happened and you're out of pocket so it gives people peace of mind so to me the financial services business is really noble in that sense and essential however what's happened is there are Far too many examples of egregious behaviour by otherwise highly credible ethical companies that have come into the public eye uh, that have fed the scepticism about business, and many many of those examples justly feed that scepticism because you say, how on earth could this happen? So what I think. We, we, we in business would know is that in any large organisation you are going to have some bad apples if I could call it that and the important thing is to have both a culture internally and systems that weed them out mm. and that stop them mm. from doing what they might mm. otherwise do And that will hopefully be an outcome of the Royal Commission, that there is a greater focus on all of that. Uh, But unfortunately, I think the immediate reaction has been, this has happened at X company, this has happened at Y company, they are bad companies. Mm. Well, it's not the truth, because fundamentally, you know, they employ thousands and thousands of people who are good people doing good things. And they've employed a small number of people who perhaps lost their way Mm. Uh, and have caused great damage. And Mm. I don't think you can translate that across the organization, but that's what's happening. Mm. And that's what's happening in this kind of newer world Mm. where the velocity of information has increased Mm. dramatically. And the immediacy. And the
1: immediacy. So, John, can I I quickly translate Mm. that then to your thoughts on the role of the board? Yeah. You know, and and maybe using that example as as, as an interesting current one. what is the role of the board in that sort of organisation where, where there are maybe some examples creeping into the public domain that not everything is as rosy as it might be?
2: Well, the, the role of the board, you know, it's um, the, the question of tone from the top is very important in all of these things. Uh, and we can all have, if you look at virtually every corporate crisis, that's ever happened where there's been, let's call it, mis-selling of some sort or another. You go to the UK, Mm. you go to the US, you go to Australia. Each of the companies concerned has had terrific codes of conduct and value statements, but they didn't necessarily live them in each of their businesses. Mm. And so the question is, how do you make... Those standards lived in a company, mm. and how do you make sure that the incentives that you create in those companies are not cre- are not disincentivizing those behaviours and motivating mm. poor behaviours? Mm. And so we've seen, for example, that um, having sales targets alone will create, with a lot of people. Uh, the incentive to create sales, regardless of whether the products suit those customers, and you say, "Well, how do you soften the target to make sure that the customer outcome actually is given a priority? Because at the end of the day, if you're selling dud products to customers, uh, it will bite you on the backside down the track, because." you will have a reputation for selling rubbish Mm. as opposed to what you thought you were doing, which is selling quality. Mm. So I think one needs to bury into uh, those kinds of things Mm. quite um, consistently. And I would say that the recent APRA report into CBA has been quite influential in its impact on how managements and boards across mm. the country yeah. are thinking at a bottom up as well as top down mm. uh, approach. Yeah. Mm.
0: Thank you, John. Changing tack a little bit, two of your books the <laughs> titles of famous songs and um, Born to Run Nowhere Man. Does that suggest you have a love of the Beatles and Bruce Springsteen in any way? Or?
2: Well, doesn't everybody? <laughs> um, it's actually the reverse. So the first book, Nowhere Man, is a financial thriller with a time travel twist. Yeah. So the, so what really happened was um, the Beatles went forward in time and took the name of my book as the name of their ah. song. <laughs>
1: There's the inner twist. You've got the exclusive there, listeners. <laughs>
0: exactly. So I haven't read that one. I've read. I've read Born to Run. I must read Nowhere Man.
1: Where do you get your inspiration from for these books? You know, you've had such a varied career, John. You know, is some of it based on experiences in your own life, people that you've met, stories that you've heard?
2: Most of it is based. There's an adage in writing which is write what you know uh, and so if you go to writing courses yeah. they say write what you know because you're not going to then you know there's a tendency that if you write about what you don't know you'll over research and the book will become a, a kind of an explication of some research as opposed to a story yeah um, there are people who say you shouldn't write what you know because make it all up Shakespeare had never been to Italy as far as I know but he wrote Merchant yeah. of Venice you know um, so there's a balance there. Yeah. But a lot of what I do in my writing, my fiction writing, comes from my business experience. Mm. Uh, so f- my latest book, which is called The Tao Deception, T-A-O, uh, is a conspiracy between China and North Korea against the West. How I came up with the idea for that book was I was um, chairman of the QBE risk committee some years ago and we did what we do every so often which is look at what are the top 10 emerging risks that the company is going to face around the world and one of the top 10 at the time was a thing called electromagnetic pulse and I'd never heard of it. So. I sought explanations and I kind of triggered my interest, did a lot of research mm. on it and thought this is actually a lot more worrying than people might think. So when you do risk analyses you look at both uh, probability and severity. Mm. So back when this was uh, being talked about the probability was small but the risk is catastrophic. And I discovered that Lloyds of London had done research on this. Swiss Re had done research on this. The US Congress had had two commissions of inquiry into this in the early 2000s. The UK Defence Department had written about it. And I thought, my gosh, this is kind of something. And basically what it's all about is, everyone's heard of solar flares. And a solar flare is, there's an explosion on the sun, and if it's big enough, when the gamma rays which come out of that explosion hit the Earth, they will fry anything electrical in their path. And so the first time that was observed by a British um, uh, astronomer was in the 1850s, Mr. Carrington. And what was observed was all around the world, on a particular day, there were these auras, auroras, Mm. you know, like the northern lights happening. Mm. And the early day of telegraph, was around and they were being short circuited and sparks were coming off and all this kind of thing. And that was from a solar flare or a solar storm. Um, and then the first time we had a man-made one was a 100 years later in the 1960s when the Russians and the Americans, as you may recall, were conducting atmospheric nuclear tests. And what they discovered was, particularly when you were doing the ones in the Pacific over Bikini Atoll, and in this case, Johnson Island, they sent up a, uh, a, um, a missile with a nuclear weapon on it, blew it up, uh, you know, 400 miles up in the air, and it turned off the lights in Hawaii. Uh, it cut the phones in Hawaii. People couldn't ring from Hawaii to the mainland of America, to Japan, to Australia, uh, and this was a serious problem. So people kind of thought, hmm, atmospheric tests, we we probably want to stop them. And um, so with uh, nuclear power, nuclear weaponry being something that North Korea Mm. was developing over quite a number of years, I thought this is quite a risk because people had been focusing on whether or not North Korea's missiles could reach America (coughs) and blow something up. And I said to myself... That might not be the problem, because if you see a missile coming, maybe you can blow it up in time. Uh, and also, will the missile hit its target? Will it burn up on re-entry? A whole lot of issues. If, on the other hand, they send up weather satellites that typically orbit the Earth at around uh, three to 500 kilometres above mm-hmm. the Earth, <coughs> pardon me, and one of those satellites has a nuclear weapon on it, And they will typically orbit over every country a couple of times a day. It takes 90 minutes for one of these things to uh, circumnavigate the globe. Um, They could have a satellite go from North Korea over the central continent of North America in about 45 minutes. And if it had a nuclear weapon on it, they blew it up, everything in America would fry. Your computers, your power grids, your water supply, pumps, etc. So I thought, sounds like a good novel. It sounds like a book. <laughs> so that's where <laughs> that, that came from <laughs> A Risk Committee of QBA. <laughs> Righty, well, there's a story <laughs> that I so didn't anticipate, pardon the
1: pun. Yeah. But listening to you talk about that, John, I have a theory of my own that, um, that actually what maybe binds the different stages in your career is a passion for research.
2: It's probably even before that. I think it's curiosity. Uh, I'm an intensely curious person, and I like to know about things. And so I will... And maybe this is partly legal training originally. I don't know. And I think it's asking the what-if questions. So if you're working on a deal... um, you know, everyone wants the deal to happen, but you're sitting around saying, Well, what if this goes wrong? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if that happens? You need to kind of build in while there is goodwill among the parties, like in a marriage. What if these things happen how we deal with them?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, the same in investment banking. You're working on transactions or whatever, advising a board. What if this goes wrong? You know, Donald Rumsfeld made that very famous and often ridiculed, but wrongly ridiculed statement about, you know, there are the known knowns, um, the unknown knowns, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing is, what we know in business is things come out of left field all the time. So trying to anticipate what they might be is important. Ignoring that is something at your peril. You'll always miss stuff because there are things that you just don't know mm. that are going on. Mm. <coughs> so I do like to ask the what-if questions in every kind of capacity that I'm in, and it's through asking those what-if questions I've sometimes got the ideas for my books. Mm.
1: Alan, have you got a book in you?
0: A book? Yeah. Yeah, probably at a race course. No, I don't get <laughs> that. You're not
1: going
0: to write a book? I always used to like writing stories at school essays. In fact, the only thing I used to win prizes for um, was actually uh, historical novels and current, you know, sort of historical events, events, sort of action type events, you know, wartime stuff. But I never wrote a book, never thought about writing
2: a book. Maybe you should try. Maybe I should try. Has everyone got a book in them, John? There's another adage in, the <laughs> <laughs> in the publishing industry. Everyone does have a book in them, and most people should keep it there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so given, John, you've had a, a series of careers and transitions, if you weren't doing
2: what you're doing now, what, what would you like to be doing next? I can't imagine, at the moment, doing anything different. Mm-hmm. I feel I'm quite blessed. Yeah. Uh, I'm uh, involved in business in a way that I really enjoy. Uh, I really enjoy being a director. It is not an easy job to Sad have uh, these days mm. uh, but it is a really important one and one that I uh, I do get a lot out of. Uh, I love writing. Uh, I love the publishing business that we my daughter and I uh, founded. Uh, it's a social purpose business okay. so we apply every day the kind of maxims that I, kind of were talking about earlier on about doing the right thing so it's a business founded on uh, filling what we felt was a gap in the publishing industry in Australia during the financial crisis where people were not investing in new talent and we felt that was a bad thing so we created a business whose key aim was discovering and nurturing new talent and we have some terrific authors we've got best-selling authors we've got award-winning authors one of our uh, authors at the moment uh, is one of the top-selling young adult writers in the country, and she has three books in the top ten right now. We're really proud of that. We think this is exactly yeah. Yeah. what we were trying to do. We invest in literacy programs, um, writers festivals. You know, all of those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, I I love doing that. Uh, I'm involved in the Cybersecurity Cooperative Research Center, which is new. Um, I've got a big interest in cybersecurity. I've written a novel about cybersecurity some years ago because, again, sitting on boards, I got quite scared about the fact that so many of my colleagues on boards weren't then paying attention to it and had a very high degree of ignorance Mm -hmm. about it. This is going back probably seven or eight years. Um, That's changed. It's no longer an emerging risk. It's a real it's risk, real. you know, so I'm having yeah. a good time. Yeah.
0: John, lastly, if you uh, could do one thing better in life, what would it be? Make
2: souffle. <laughs> <laughs> are
1: you fun, a fan of souffle? You
2: know, there are few foods better <gasps> yeah. than a perfect souffle. I love souffle.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Don't you like saying, souffle? Uh, well, I'll eat. They don't Douglas have them anyway. I There's knew any I heavy. didn't like you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Do you like the savoury or the sweet, or it doesn't matter?
2: Uh, I prefer the sweet. And the sweet. I mean, for me, the pinnacle is probably either a lemon souffle yeah. or a passion fruit souffle. Very
1: nice. Yeah. John,
2: thank you so much for coming in today. It's, it's been been terrific. A pleasure. Thank and, you for uh, having me.
0: Good luck with the next book.
2: Thank you.